So the meaning of the title Christ or Messiah is king, literally anointed one, chosen and set apart to rule. And we know that in Christ's first advent, he was far from recognized as such by all but a few. Rather than being crowned with a royal diadem, as the great hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name declares. By the way, one of the reasons I love singing hymns is because you never get to say the word ineffably anywhere, except if you're singing the hymn, crown him with many credits. Ineffably sublime. And potentate. Yes, and potentate of time, that's right. But rather than being crowned with a royal diadem, as the great hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, declares he was crowned with thorns while soldiers mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, and Pilate cynically condemned him to death, labeling him with those same sarcastic and mean words. But we believe that his death wasn't the end, but rather showed that he was indeed a king of a far greater kingdom when God raised him from the dead. And we believe that after he rose, he was honored by being exalted to the highest place. As Paul wrote beautifully in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every name, should bow and in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Today, we celebrate the feast of Christ the King, so it's great that we have a feast like three days after Thanksgiving, isn't it? Um, the last Sunday, in the church calendar and the culmination culmination of the church's year, which begs the question, or ought to, why the church calendar? I mean, we're coming to the end of the year anyway. And I can tell you in two words, spiritual formation. The people who wrote some of the most profound liturgical prayers from St. John Chrysostom in the 4th century to Thomas Cranmer in the 16th century Book of Common Prayer were zealous followers of Jesus and diligent scholars of the scriptures. And when the seasons of the church calendar were developed, they developed as a way to aid in the spiritual formation of those who sought to follow Christ in the same way. Easter was, of course, the first church-wide event commemorated. Lent, then, was the earliest actual season to develop and be adopted by the whole church by around A.D. 330. The other seasons of the church year, like Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and Pentecost, which today, I don't know if you noticed that on our bulletins, normally the way that we mark time is in relationship in ordinary time, is in relationship to Pentecost. Today would be the 26th Sunday after Pentecost. By around the 11th or the 12th century, the church year was fully formed, save the Feast of Christ the King, which is a relatively recent addition, established by Pope Pius XI in 1925. 
as a response to the terrible disillusionment and despair wrought by World War I in Europe. His desire was to reaffirm the kingship and ultimate authority of Christ over all aspects of human life, spiritual, political, interpersonal, and economic. But so what? I mean, ancient or modern, why ought we apply our lives to these things today? To say it simply, the liturgical year was developed to help disciple believers in a world of ignorance and distraction, which doesn't sound dissimilar from our day. To spiritually form us more and more into the image of Christ. And there are two main ways that it does this. First, it centers us on Christ. As Christianity spread, many of the church's members, and for a time in the, in the early Middle Ages, many of its clergy were illiterate and ignorant of the scriptures and theology. A year that would center them on Christ was a way of helping them, teaching them, placing them in a rhythm of living that helped them reflect on Christ and to know him. The liturgical year follows the life of Christ. It begins with anticipating his coming and return in Advent, celebrating his birth at Christmas, marveling at his revealing during Epiphany, humbling ourselves in repentance as we join in the fasting, as we join in his fasting in the wilderness during Lent. Have you ever wondered why Lent is 40 days long? Because Jesus fasted 40 days. Reflecting on his passion during Holy Week, remembering our sin and the weight of all the world's evil that he carried on the cross on Good Friday, embracing the silent emptiness of Holy Saturday, celebrating the breaking forth of new life at Easter and during Easter tide, rejoicing in his giving of the Spirit and his work in the church during Pentecost, then trusting that his presence is still with us during all those weeks of ordinary time. And the liturgical year continues to help us center our lives, not around temporal concerns and distractions, but around Christ. The other thing it does is to more fully connect us, not in name only, but viscerally with the body of Christ. We talk often about wanting the church to be in unity, and we pray for it. But then we dismiss often its traditions as empty rituals. But what if these sacred traditions can be a way of actually um, helping us to walk together in unity? One of, the, one of the real benefits of practicing Lent, for example, is that when you're fasting during Lent, something you feel in your body, you're fasting alongside hundreds of millions of Christians all around the world at the very same time. All the church's feasts and fasts and seasons and holy days do the very same thing. The scriptures that we read today were read about seven hours ago in Africa. And in Europe, we're joining with the church in that way. 
But the bottom line is you don't need, you don't need to care about the church calendar. You don't, you don't have to celebrate Lent or participate in Ash Wednesday. These are not requirements or laws. But then again, you don't need to have a date night with your spouse. And you don't need to take family vacations. But rhythms and routines are potent ways of reinforcing and even building desire. It's because I want to nurture my relationship with Lauren that we have date nights. It's because we desired that our family be deeply connected, that we took vacations together and had and have some pretty inviolable family rituals and traditions. In the same way, it's because I want to nurture my relationship with Christ and because I want to be connected to the body of Christ that I gladly embrace the rituals and traditions of the liturgical year. It's a sacred rhythm, routine, that reinforces and intensifies a desire to follow Christ and become like him, create the space for his spirit to shape us. And it's a powerful reminder that we're not the first to follow Christ. Nor are we the only ones attempting to do so today. We're joining a great communion of saints and sinners, the people of God, journeying together. And as we finish the church year, we look today to the end, not merely as conclusion, but as completion the fulfillment of the purpose and work toward which all that Jesus said and did was directed. We anticipate the day when his power and great glory as king will be fully revealed and Christ will sit as righteous judge. This is something we affirm every week in the Nicene Creed, God's power exercised through Christ at the end, just as the world was made through him in the past, now and in the future, he lives and reigns forever. The gospel readings over the past several weeks have given texture to that future, vivid images in several parables that we've looked at. And here in the final one, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the king of kings seated on his heavenly throne is judging the people of all the nations of the earth. The final judgment is the climactic passage in the discourse at the end times that spans Matthew 24 and 25. And here we get the New Testament's only detailed depiction of the final judgment. The, 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 this dramatic scene follows a series of exhortations and parables through which Jesus has taught his followers what constitutes right living as we await his return in glory. The passage opens with a vivid description of the Son of Man's coming in glory, accompanying, accompanied by the angels seated on his throne. The nations are then gathered and separated into two groups, sheep and goats. It was common at the time for shepherds to have mixed flocks. At night, they routinely separated the sheep from the goats. Sheep got to enjoy the open air of the pastures, while goats had to be sheltered from the cold. And because sheep had more commercial value, they were preferred over goats. As a shepherd, Jesus separates the sheep who were placed at his right hand from the goats on his left. 
The picture of Jesus as shepherd then morphs into the image of Jesus as king. And as king, he's vested with God's power to execute judgment. He declares the sheep blessed by God and invites them to inherit the fullness of kingdom. They are blessed because they fed the king when he was hungry. They gave him drink when he was thirsty. They welcomed him when he was a stranger. They clothed him when he was naked. They cared for him when he was sick. And they visited him when he was imprisoned. But they're perplexed because they can't recall ever having done those things to him. And he tells them they'd done so whenever they were merciful to one of the least of these, my brothers. Next, the king declares the goats cursed and consigns them to eternal fire. They're cursed because they did not feed, give drink, welcome, clothe, or visit Jesus in his need. Like the sheep, the goats are confounded. When? When have they failed to serve? Jesus responds that their lack of merciful care for the least of these was neglect of him. Thus, the goats will go to punishment while the sheep, now called righteous, will inherit eternal life. Obviously, there's been a lot of debate among theologians and commentators over the centuries about just what Jesus meant by this parable. By the phrases, all the nations, ethne, in verse 32, and the least of these, my brothers, in verses 40 and 45. Some more recent commentators point out that elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses the word ethne to refer specifically to Gentiles. Moreover, he uses the phrase, the least of these, my brothers, to describe specifically his disciples. They argue that it's reasonable to expect that Jesus retains both of those meanings here. So, for them, this passage depicts judgment only of Gentiles, understood here as non-Christians and non-Jews, with the sole criterion for declaring them righteous or not being whether they have dealt mercifully with Jesus' disciples. These are the least of these with whom the Son of Man identifies, his brothers and his sisters. It's specifically talking about showing mercy to Christians. And this should lead us to ask, if this is true, that his, this judgment is only about treating Jesus' disciples well, why so much talk about the poor? Doesn't this kind of just get us off the hook? But the more ancient interpretive traditions, both East and West, read this passage more universally. That is, the nations refers to all people as in God so loved the world, including Christians, and the least of these refers to anyone who is in need. The huge problem with that, of course, becomes the issue of eternal reward or condemnation based here in this passage entirely on works. What about grace? Aren't Aren't we saved entirely by grace through faith and not at all by works? It may not surprise some of you that as an Enneagram 9, the peacemaker, I see truth in both of these interpretations and value in them. That does not force them to be mutually exclusive. In fact, I think having to see it as one or the other either minimizes the reality of judgment 
or creates a false dichotomy. These final weeks of the church year have been, we've been reading lots of passages on judgment from both the Old and the New Testaments. I mean, week after week. And so, so it's probably time to say something about grace and judgment. And it ought to give us both hope and pause. And firstly, if you hear me say nothing else today, please remember this. If, according to Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with 